Well, first is, is to make sure that they're, they're supported to do so, right? Yes. So make sure that as we look at how faculty allocate their effort, that they, we respect that people do that, right? Mm -hmm. And that we acknowledge that it's a value to the institution. Um, but a lot of it is getting folks to recognize that what you're doing in your research actually does have, if you're interested, it does have some sort of commercialization capacity. Mm -hmm. um, and that whether it's, you know, a patent, a license, protecting your know-how, like whatever it is, that if you want to try something new, moving into the commercial space can intellectually be a blast. Yeah. Hello and welcome everyone. You are listening to the Clarkson Ignite podcast coming to you from the digital making suite in the Innovation Hub. Hello everyone, I'm Nima. Our podcast releases every 10th, 20th and 30th of the month. Of the month. <laughs> our mission is to shape this podcast to the Ignite slogan, which is think, make, ignite. We hope to connect individuals across Clarkson's diverse community and give you, our listeners, interesting and unique content. Our hope is that you can walk away from our episodes learning something new and valuable, something that will, may, that will inspire you. Inspiring. Yeah. For this week's episode, we are talking to Robin Hannigan, Clarkson's new provost. She has had an impressive career in academia as well as in the creative startup world. She has four patents, one of which with the creative name of Peltier Cooled Cryogenic Lazier Laser <laughs> Ablation Cell. Uh, she has been cited by almost 1,700 papers since 2014 for her research. Her lengthy resume, resume also boasts the founding dean of the School of Environment at UMass Boston and the creator of two successful startups. And she is probably one of the most interesting guests we have had on. It was great to have Robin on, and we hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Listener mail. All right, this comes in from Caitlin Oaken, a senior. And treasurer of the outing club. <laughs> she asked us, if you were to give a PhD in anything, what would it be? Nima, give me your thoughts. Um, recently I've made, I've been making some pretty good smoothies, so I'll say smoothies. Mm -hmm. Is that I've, because you work at the smoothie station? Mm, partly, but I can definitely make way better smoothies than the smoothie station. All right, we got a hot take from Nima. She makes better smoothies than the smoothie station. What's, yeah, what's those don't even number? count we as smoothies. To... Oh, they don't even count as smoothies? Yeah. Wow. That's how opinion. good your, your smoothie game is? Yeah. That's incredible. How about yours? Uh, I would definitely have a PhD in um, making breakfast food. Mm. Uh, I love eating breakfast just like, um, I don't know who that, the very manly figure is in um, Parks and Recreation. Oh. Yeah. Well, what's his name? I don't know. Yeah. Can't remember his name, but everybody knows what he is. He's got a crazy mustache. And mm. I like breakfast just as much as him. I will take an hour just to make a delicious breakfast with bacon, eggs, and mm. like toasted with butter, English muffins. Mm. So yeah, I'd have a PhD in breakfast food. Okay, then question. Should breakfast food be sweet or savory? Oh, it should be savory. Savory? Yeah, no. Okay. I don't think it really deserves to be sweet. Even I mean, I love a donut every once in a while, but like, uh -huh. honestly... Nothing's better than some over easy eggs and some bacon and stuff like that. It's got to be greasy too. Oh, All right. Greasy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Uh... 
along with the show. All right, Robin Hannigan is here with us this week. She is the new provost at Clarkson University. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, How have you enjoyed your time so far, Clarkson? How could you not enjoy your time at Clarkson? I mean, I think the best thing is that the weather hasn't turned freezing yet, so I haven't been scared away. Yeah, you haven't been here a full year. Right, right. Yeah, ask me in a year. (laughs) Have you discovered anything quirky or fun about the town yet? I have discovered that Everybody knows every move you're about to make before you know you're going to make it. So it's a small town. Well, it's pretty easy. Yeah, it's so. like, what, are you going to go to Maxfields or are you going to go to Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've gone to both, right? I've yeah, seen everybody that, I know. Yeah, yeah. Right when I moved here, everybody was like, oh, you bought the house and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, how could you know that? Like, I haven't even moved in yet. But... It's already in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, how could we not know? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. How do you not know? The Potsdam Post. They know. Yeah. They got inside people. I see. So uh, we're going to start right off. Uh, sure. What inspired you to become the scientist, the researcher, the academic you came to be? Was it like a past catalyst or something like that? That's it. You know, some of it comes from the fact that I, I was lucky enough to have parents that really always encouraged me to question things and to ask the why. Um, being young and running into, you know, so I grew up in Rhode Island and, and the Narragansett Reservation right next to University of Rhode Island. And there were graduate students that would come out and do work on the coast. And so I would see people picking up snails and mussels and I'd be like, what are they doing? And so the the questioning and watching other people question, but it was probably, I always say that I parlayed a, a, a fairly significant ADD issue into a career and that I'm always questioning things and bouncing around ideas. And so science just seemed to be the path that was going to let me explore what I wanted to explore in the way that I wanted to explore it. Wow. And then you took that right out of uh, undergrad and you went to one of the best places in the world, Woods Hole. And how was that? Uh, Woods Hole was awesome. Yeah. yeah. So out of undergrad, went up to, you know, I do know winters, by the way. I did my <laughs> master's at SUNY Buffalo and my PhD oh. at Rochester. Yeah. So I do know winter. But, and now um, I'm in Potsdam. And now I'm in Potsdam. <laughs> so, but yeah, I did, I did my first postdoc down in Woods Hole in marine chemistry. And that was amazing. Because everything that everybody is doing there is all about, you know, the craziness of inquiry and discovery. So mm-hmm. it was really fun. Was there a difference between there and um, oh, the other place? What was um, Rochester, old, Buffalo, Old Dominion? Old Dominion, oh, Old Dominion yeah. Old Dominion, yeah. So it's very different, right? So Woods Hole is all research all the time, and there's no students. Um, in fact, we were kind of told like it's it's cheaper to hire a technician than to have a student. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very different vibe. Whereas Old Dominion is a real university with you know all kinds of undergrads and graduate students, and so the vibe was very different. Still cool research, mm-hmm. but actually people around to talk to. Which yeah. Was nice. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. nice. Yeah. People to talk to definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um. So your second time around in uh, UMass Boston, you uh-huh. were the dean of the School of Environment. How was that experience like for you? That was awesome because I was the founding dean. Right? Right. So it was um, I got to actually design a school and build a school, and it was sort of like my research career, right? I got to figure out what I thought a cool experiment would be in terms of standing up a new academic unit and then um, get it operational and mm-hmm. get the academic programs going and get the faculty moving in, in different directions, and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Did they reach out to you for that, or did you come to them with the idea to start that new No, I was working for National Science Foundation at the mm-hmm. time, and they were advertising for a department chair 
in the what was a crazy name environmental earth and ocean sciences right so it was like earth wind and fire like mm. everything um, <laughs> and i went down there to be the department chair and very quickly realized that this institution in 19 the early 80s had this vision of the environment being embedded in every single thing they did so if you went into the psychology department you found environmental psychologists and that at some point they just decided to squander that opportunity, right, mm-hmm. and fall behind everybody. Um, so I decided that this, that was stupid and that we were going to fix that. And so I tore up what I had and built something new that had no boundaries. There was no departments. There was no mm-hmm. real administrative structure other than a dean, um, although I did teach. And I had six PhD students, and I'm still finishing them up right now. Mm-hmm. So it was very much... Uh, we were all over the campus in every piece of the operation, and we recaptured, rekindled that great idea they had in the 80s. Yeah, so it was fun. Wow. What would you say was your biggest focus goal while you were, like, in your efforts? We were always there. Yeah. Was to demonstrate that um, higher education can be responsive and can be innovative in ways that... Um, sort of knock down boundaries, whether it's boundaries for students being successful and pursuing what they're interested in or, you know, new ways of developing financial models so that mm-hmm. you're not as dependent on, you know, internal sources. And if you catalyze faculty to do what they do best, whatever that is, mm-hmm. that you actually get a heck of a lot more <laughs> out of it. Wow. So, yeah. Then how do you like uh, living in Boston as opposed to, uh, you know, living uh, in Boston? <laughs> so Boston, I would like... There, I there's no greater city in the world. I, know. I don't think. I um, agree with you completely. Right. Well, you're from Marshfield. Go right? Sox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go Sox, exactly. Um, and I have to say, like very quietly, go Pats. Right. Um, yeah. Why? Because my husband's a Packers fan, and so I'm oh. not allowed to demonstrate my true allegiances very often. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can do it here. Right. You can definitely do it here. Excellent. Glad to hear that. Yeah. So I mean, Boston is the the thing that I loved most about Boston was that. It's, you know, it's the oldest city that we have, and it is, you know, the, the source of our freedom, and so mm-hmm. it's a great city. But it also is one that every day it's changing. There's, um, you know, huge pushes in innovation, and there's just really, you know, it's 51 universities right there. So yeah. the yeah, dynamics are constantly changing, and so it's never dull. But I do not in any way, shape, or form miss 93 traffic, like mm. even a little bit. Yeah, no. no. You're you're right. You're right mm. on that one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't miss that. That you can always tell someone from Boston because they're always walking with their head down, looking like someone shot their dog. They just look very sad and very uh-huh. like grayish colored, you yeah, know, gloomy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't miss that either. <laughs> that's what I picture when I picture Boston. I've never been. Yeah, but yeah. You just picture this slumped yeah. over. Yeah, that's how I've know. seen it. But I I also heard they have great food. So. Oh my god, the food there is mm. awesome. Yeah, yeah. The food is very yeah. good. Especially in um, the new part of town that they're building up. No, oh, the down in the south end, side? yeah, the southie, yeah, yeah Southport. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's really nice. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I do miss the cannolis in the north end. Oh yeah, I know. Cannolis. Going to Mike's Pastry, right, right, just, dude. Oh, yeah. I'd blow too much money there. I only go there once a summer. Yeah, just once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go there as often as you want. <laughs> so uh, you did a lot of research, obviously, mm-hmm. and then you developed startup companies off yeah. of that. How are you going to encourage uh, the Clarkson University faculty to follow in the same entrepreneurial path? Well, first is is to make sure that they're they're supported to do so, right? Yeah. So, make sure that as we look at how faculty allocate their effort, that they we respect that 
people do that, right? Mm-hmm. And that we acknowledge that it's a value to the institution. Um, but a lot of it is getting folks to recognize that what you're doing in your research actually does have, if you're interested, it does have some sort of commercialization capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whether it's, you know, a patent, a license, protecting your know-how, like whatever it is, that if you want to try something new, moving into the commercial space can intellectually be a blast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I know a lot of people on the podcast that we've had, uh, they have some different market value to their research. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so I'm just trying to stand up processes and you know, support and financial support for them to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had a lot of different roles working for startups and in academia. What was the difference between higher education and corporate atmospheres in your experience? I mean, it wasn't really corporate, but it was startup. It was startup, yeah. I, so it was in the startup, you had to move very fast and you had to pivot Almost immediately. So as soon as you got the signal that, you know, the product that you're in development for, that your end user has decided, unbeknownst to you, to shift yeah. their portfolio, that you, in order to stay market ready, you have to pivot, which means you just invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in something, drop it, run, and go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas in academia, you get a lot of this, we've been doing it this way for the past two centuries, mm-hmm. and... That's just the way it's going to be, right? Yeah. So getting, and I, and I think, and I always joke with the people who work in my office, like, you know, have you met me? Like, we got to move on. I can't, yeah. you yeah. know. So uh, being able to balance my impatience with my sincere want to do the right thing, mm-hmm. you know. So at least, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of went into the startup thing was, like, I needed to get some of my angst put someplace else yeah. and start companies and, you know. And I wouldn't have none of those. All those companies were started with my students, and so my students were actually the brains behind everything that we did. So I would come up with some kind of cockamamie idea, mm-hmm. but if it weren't for my students, those cockamamie ideas would have stayed in my brain. They were the ones who had the genius to actually execute, and they were the ones upon whom I depended to move us from just this crazy idea to actually commercialization. And so. Um, you know, if it weren't for the the guys that and gals that I started these companies with, I never would have been anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you still play a large role in those startups? No, I was bought out, so okay. I exited. Um, let's see, the first company we went through Series B funding, and then we exited when we sold to a major global. Mm-hmm. And then the chief, the um, president of the company, was one of my PhD students, is now running that side of wow. of the global oh. enterprise. And then the second company was started with one of my master's students, and we exited in the middle of phase B, sold it to um, another company. He then went to work for them, quit, and started a competing organization. So he's actually competing against the original technology he invented. Wow. Yeah. So Taking in twice the dough, though. Well, he's yeah. doing very well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you follow the companies at all? Of also? course I do. Yeah. yeah, I always want to see what's going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I actually met um, one of our board members used to, he retired, he worked for a company that actually acquired my first company. Yeah. And I had, you know, they had been acquired a couple times now, so I really wasn't clear where that line of product, because they don't make what I make anymore, right? Yeah. But they kind of moved into different directions, so I kind of lost touch, and so it was really cool to run into him and be like, what, you guys bought it. Whatever happened, you know, yeah. where is yeah. it now? And getting a sense of how far that field has moved 
since our company exited. What were the what was the first company? What so was your product? The first company was Hyphenated Solutions, and mm-hmm. so it was um, a technology that was a group of technologies that were designed to get analytical instruments who don't talk to one another to actually talk. So. Mm-hmm. In this, we it started because I I had uh, a it's a crazy idea that I wanted to measure the chemicals in tobacco smoke, mm-hmm. right? And I only I'm like I'm a geochemist, like so, but I had a crazy idea, and I thought I know that there's organometals in aerosols, right? But right now the way that we measure metals is with one kind of mass spectrometer, the way that we separate gases is with gas chromatography. Those two things don't talk to each other. So how do I build a system that keeps something in the gas phase separate enough to get into this other thing to, to actually detect? That's what we. That's the first technology we developed. Mm-hmm. Turns out that in order to measure um, perfluorinated compounds, right? So mm-hmm. PFAS and things like mm-hmm. that when you're doing um, contaminant detection in water, and it turns out, we didn't know this, but it turns out in smokestacks, you actually need to be able to do that. So we took that technology and then we flipped it uh, and decided that rather than using a mass spec, because those are expensive, right, that we would use a fluorometer. And it turns out some of these organometals that are really bad for the Achillea actually fluoresce. Mm-hmm. So we took that technology, maneuvered it around, plugged in a Fourier transform thingy and got it to talk to a fluorescence detector so that you could mount it on a smokestack and actually monitor real time wow. what oh. you're putting out. And... Uh, what else we do? We t- so it would be really so. Then I had a, another project with the Department of Defense that was dark, but there was a piece was that dark. was coming out of that that <laughs> was that could see the light, and so that piece that could see the light then turned into another technology that leveraged those other things that we did, and then all of those pieces then were acquired by the companies that sold the detectors yeah. mm-hmm. as new sample introduction systems to sell to customers. Wow. So that was the first one, and it was just hyphenated solutions because we were hyphenating instruments together. Um, then the second one was geomed analytical because mm-hmm. it turned out the banana ideas that we had actually had some medical benefit. We didn't know that except for I just happened to be down at the med school talking to one of the faculty about something, and they said, "Well, you know, it'd be, it's too bad that there's no way to measure this." And I looked at them and I was like, "Dude, there is a way to measure that. I measure that in my lab every day. I just don't do it with like squishy biological stuff, right?" Mm-hmm. So. We used my technologies to do squishy biological stuff, and it was frying. It was turning to scrambled eggs and all kinds of stuff. So I had to develop a technology that allowed the biological material to stay intact as we were analyzing the surface. And so it turns out that what we were doing you could use for um, brain scanning and um, looking at, like, the distribution of metals in, in brain to see if you have, like, Alzheimer's issues. Or Then it turned into, like, Turns out there's some genetic stuff that has some metal coating on it. So mm-hmm. it turned into this thing. So that was geomed analytical. So it was taking geochemical techniques that we use, applying it to the medical industry, and then analyzing new things with it. And so that bunch of technologies went out. So yeah. So wow. it's just mostly like I wonder if you could push a button and make. I remember one of my grad students, my master's student in the second company. I asked him, I said, what would do, what would happen if you took that laser and you opened up the hood of it and you dumped it down in the harmonic so it could look like this? And he goes, the only way I can do that is if I stick my head in this thing while it's firing. And I said, well, that's a laser. I wonder if that's a good idea. And so he figured out a way where he could open up the hood, keep himself far enough away so that he could actually see if he could get it to work at the level that we wanted. 
So some, and then every now and then in my labs, you hear big booms, you know. Oops. Stuff, yeah. So that's <laughs> what we would say. Oops. Yeah, that wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah. yeah. While, uh, while researching you a little bit and surfing the web, we found one of your patent titles that was Peltier Cooled Cryogenic Laser Ablation Cell. Yeah. Yeah, is the that, cryogenic is that yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, oh, so wow. that's the, it's a, um, when you take a laser and you shoot holes and stuff, right? Like they do with your LASIK surgery in your eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, if they if they use the particular laser that we were trying to use, this was fertility studies because I learned, I'm not a biologist by any stretch. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that in infertility, um, when you have a sperm intersect with the surface of the egg, Calcium, the, the element calcium, will spread across the entire surface of that egg immediately, precluding what we call polysperming, which is another sperm fertilizing the egg at the same time, which kills the whole thing, right? So they wanted to map how quickly calcium covers, coats the surface of the egg upon fertilization. So that was where the scrambled egg thing came. Remember, like we were shooting it with our laser, and we were making scrambled eggs. So I could get the, <laughs> I could get the very first nanosecond of that interaction, but I couldn't map over time, how things were happening. Mm-hmm. So we invented the cryogenically cooled system. Now, the Peltier is important because most cooling systems at the time were using um, antifreeze or liquid nitrogen or whatever. And we were too cheap, too lazy. Um, and most of my work is motivated by being lazy. Yes. That, uh, we decided to take the Peltiers, which are two, two electrically conduct- conducting panels, one of which gets hot, and, the, uh, and because of the electrostatic pressure between the two of them, they'll actually start to cool the other one, right? So mm. we pulled it off another instrument that had a Peltier on it that I, I believe one of my grad students got mad because he needed it on there. But we took it off there, and then we integrated it into the laser system so that we could keep the cell cool so that I could actually map the entire reaction. Um, and it turned into a thing that we patented and then became a company. And then, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Seems like everything was just made by, oh, maybe this would work. Like, so, yeah. Let's just throw yeah. these two together. Yeah, yeah. It was either laziness, like there's got to be a, an easy way for this to happen yeah. because I don't want to do this for four hours. <laughs> or I wonder what will happen if I push this button. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wow. And one of my PhD students in the button, so we work with a very high voltage thing, right? And I was sitting in my office and his instrument was right outside my office door. And I hear, Boom. And then like a splatter, kind of like stuff falling all over the place. And my grad PhD student comes in and he goes, I just want to show you something. Right? And he does it again. He actually put his finger in the high voltage thing oh. to show me again what happened. And I was like, dude, like you don't have to repeat the stupidity just once. <laughs> but he wanted to show me how cool it was that it would actually blow you across the room if you did that. So, yeah, Dave, what can you At do? least it's cool. It was very yeah. cool. Yeah. I was like, let's not do it three times. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Got to get a video of it, though. Yeah. I, that's yeah. the thing is I wasn't thinking I should pull out my phone and take a video of it. That yeah. would have been awesome. Yeah. So uh, back to uh, Clarkson a little bit. Yeah. Um, how do you believe diversity positively affects research and education? I know you worked with uh, Native American groups, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there was a sense of trying to push the groups towards a goal rather than work together to a common goal. Yep. How do you encourage that? So I think what you have to to recognize in, in any endeavor, right, is that the more diverse the voices are that are contributing to a solution, the more likely you are to get a solution that's of value, mm-hmm. right? So when we look at diversity in higher education and we talk about, you know, what we're doing in universities and how we stack up programs and how we even schedule you and blah, 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 
the, the more diverse perspectives we bring to those problems, the more likely the solution is going to actually advantage everyone. So I think often people reach out to um, communities of color or, um, you know, different intersectional groups to say, we want you to join in. It's, it's often, even nowadays, insincere. What I really want to be able to do is I want to be able to say I talk to you. I don't really want to hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Or I want to, you know, I need you to check a box for me. Mm-hmm. And so I need you to come to the table. Or as I always say, like, you need to trot me out as the pony. Check the box that I showed up, and then you can put me back in my stall, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, um, I, I sincerely believe that those institutions like Clarkson who have said that diversity, equity, and inclusion are actually interwoven to every move that we're going to make, that they're approaching, you know, communities and, and different voice groups from a very different perspective. Is that we? We are not going to move forward until all voices are heard and we understand everyone's perspective. Then we'll come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, back to your research yeah. on uh, integrated <coughs> organism, organism, <laughs> organisms, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, report to environmental change. How has our evolved? How how has our evolved due to? Oh, I recent... wrote that wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. What, what were you really trying that to was, say? What am I trying to say? Myself? What is she trying to say? <laughs> it's uh, how does your research respond to environmental change? I mean, yeah, if you believe in it. <laughs> if I believed in it, right? So I, I, my, my work goes from two hundred fifty million years ago to the future. Right. Oh, so yeah. I do both um, paleo climate reconstructions, and then I take the paleo conditions. I put them in the lab. I do terrible things to animals. When my grad students do, I do not. Right? It doesn't matter because I'm not a biologist. Um, and then, you know, so what I look at is within an individual organism like you, right? Mm-hmm. I want to know what your body is going to do. And in particular, because I have to go back in time, I'm only interested in your hard parts because your squishy parts aren't going to be in the fossil record, but your hard parts are. So I want to know how your body, your bone structure, your ear stone structure, how all of that's going to change if I change the pH. I mostly work with critters in the water. How the pH of the water is going to change that, right? And then I can get a sense of, oh, that actually changed the inability of your ear stones to work, so now you're deaf. Mm. Let me go back in time into the fossil record, right, because I reconstruct the condition I want to do in the lab from the past. Now I go back in the past and I say, do I see those sorts of um, morphological differences amongst organisms that were living in those things? And can I make some conclusions about what was going on at the population level mm-hmm. and at the ocean-wide level about the timing of extinction? Because I work on extinction. So the timing of extinction, the pace of extinction, and how much of that is driven by rapid climate change versus gradual climate change. Mm-hmm. So what's your estimate then? So it's never good. I will tell you that yeah. at every single time we've had a major climate um, change on our planet, which well, we have a lot of climate changes, right? But mm-hmm. the major ones, there's been five or six, depending on who you talk to. Every single one of them has been a mass extinction. So, and every single one of those has been gradual, right? Because it's been there's been no people driving. Dinosaurs were not responsible for what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you, if you look at that and you say, okay, now we are accelerating it, so we're actually increasing it at least at a rate from 8 to 15% beyond what's – that's a conservative estimate – beyond what nature would normally do. The planet's feedback systems can't respond that fast. And so if we know they can't respond 
And we know that you as an individual organism are starting to genetically respond to these things and that those things are actually inherited. How many generations is it going to take before what I saw in the fossil record that took 100,000 years? How fast is it going to happen now? Mm-hmm. And is there any way out of it? And so I think it, it's, a, it's a big deal, and mm-hmm. I absolutely believe in it. Um, do I believe that we're... At that a, was more at, of a joke question. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of times, though, I worry that people will hear people like me talk about the importance of technological responses to it and think that I think that technology is going to solve the problem. And so I'm also known as Debbie Downer mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there is no way out of this problem. Right. So you're not going to be able to technologically solve this problem. You are going to technologically protect and conserve what you can't. Mm-hmm. Right. But there is going to be a lot of loss. Mm-hmm. Great. Let's just see how different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The good news is, though, your planet's going to be fine. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. Without us. Yeah, though. you won't yeah, be here. Us. Yeah. 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 It doesn't really matter. Cockroaches yeah. will really appreciate all the niches you'll open up. Yeah, yeah. I bet they will. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> And then what's that organism that survives all of the uh, all of the mass extinctions? Uh, I think it's like a deep sea organism. Yeah, there's 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 some worms that have survived. Um, sharks have survived several of them. Some of the bivalves have survived. Brachiopods have survived four mass extinctions, so they're oh. pretty good at what they do. Yeah. What ab- they look like a little bear under a microscope? Oh, those guys! Yeah, yeah the tet the oh my god, Tardis. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. tardigrades. Tardigrades, yeah, they're they're actually so. I think NASA sent them in space. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, they yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, they'll be fine. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, and, and if I'm you're if you're a tardigrade, tardigrades. that's awesome. You're having a great time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but if you're us, but, if you're, <laughs> but chances are, even if the tardigrades do well, all the things that eat the tardigrades would be dead. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a planet of tardigrades, which could be cool. Yeah. yeah. There's like some. Oh, what show is that? It's like one of the Star Treks, right? That has a tardigrade, a giant tardigrade that's uh, actually. The drive for the ship. It's the most recent Star Trek. Oh, wow. I yeah. don't think I've seen it. Yeah. It's, it came out it's like last year. The, it's the first season. Yeah, yeah. So they have a giant tardigrade that they found somewhere out in space. They plug in this electrical stuff and it drives the ship. It's freaking awesome. That is I mean, it's insane. sad because mm-hmm. they tortured yeah, the poor thing. But, you know, it works pretty good. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes, yeah. You got to run Disney World somehow. Somehow you do. Yeah, you got to keep the lights on at the chip factory. Yeah. <laughs> What's uh What's the one thing you're looking forward to for the, the first year at Clarkson? Here, I'm I'm psyched to see. You know, we're, we're when you when you look at the the focus on innovation and entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and getting every student, no matter what they're pursuing as their major, engaged in this this crazy space. Mm-hmm. Seeing how that actually plays out, not just at the student level, but how the faculty and staff are actually engaged in those things and starting to. You know, build up more engagement at that level so that it really becomes, and then translating that into the nimbility of the academic ecosystem and the way that we do things. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, I'm excited to see this year how much of that spirit we can get to pervade everything that mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. My for pleasure. Thank you. It was fun. Alright guys, thank you so much for listening this week. Again, my name is Nick. My name's Nima. I hope to listen to you guys next time. Thank you.